0: If you would, let's go back to Galatians chapter 4. And it looks like we will finish chapter 4 today. And just to catch you up, as we always do on the book of Galatians itself, we've seen very clearly that the theme is our liberty in Christ with the theme verse being chapter 5 and verse 1, and we should be there next week. And that is, Stand fast, therefore, in the liberty wherewith Christ hath made us free. And be not entangled again with the yoke of bondage. And just by way of review, uh, Paul is passionately writing to these Galatian believers in churches that he helped plant. He had led many of these uh, Galatians to Christ, and he's very upset because they have allowed false teachers to come into the church and pervert the gospel of grace because they've added works to salvation. And they'd really done it in a twofold way. They had said, basically, you know, yes, Christ is the only way to heaven, is the only way to God, but we're the only way to Christ. We're the only way to God and, and you have to become a Jew and you have to fulfill the Old Testament. In fact, if uh, Gentile men were converted, uh, they were commanded to be circumcised or they could not even be saved. And so this was a very serious uh, perversion of the gospel. Paul was very upset about that, but Even on the back end, they added works. You're saved by works, but then you have to keep yourself saved by works. And that's the only logical conclusion to works-based salvation. It's totally opposite of salvation by grace through faith in the finished work and person of Jesus Christ. And throughout about four and a half chapters, Paul is really making a theological argument against salvation by the law, justification by works, and he really destroys their argument. I'm not going to go through all that again, but uh, by the time you get to last week's text, the middle part of chapter 4, Paul really shifts gears and he really shows his pastor's heart for these believers. He is hurt because they have been so deceived. He knows them personally, and uh, he is pleading to them, and apparently the Judaizers had turned these Galatian believers against Paul. He said, have I become your enemy because I told you the truth? And he wasn't telling them the truth about any particular sin. He wasn't cataloging sin in the context. He was saying, have I become your enemy because I preached the truth of the gospel, freedom and liberty in the gospel. Uh, That can make a lot of enemies. Christian liberty can make a lot of enemies. I've made a a lot of enemies. Preaching messages like I have the last two weeks. And that's just uh, not, you know, trying to be unnecessarily offensive, but just uh, we do have freedom in Christ. And, you know, there would be people uh, that would try to come in and take that away from you. Not that you can lose your salvation, but you can certainly lose the joy and the peace and the forgiveness that comes with knowing Christ. And I would say that uh, young believers, new believers, are especially susceptible to that. But it's not just limited to young believers. Don't think that somebody that's been saved for a long time can't fall prey to that. They absolutely can. And and I liken it to uh, maybe a young couple that hasn't been married for very long, and I'm sure that all of you can identify with this. But when you first get married and you're trying to figure out everything, you know, where you want to live and how you uh, want to raise your kids and, you know, all these decisions that every couple has to make for themselves, everybody's got an opinion About how you should do certain things. And it is great to listen to advice, especially from people that have been there, but there's a line that can be crossed to where now they're literally trying to play Holy Spirit in your life and they're trying to make decisions for you that's really between you and your spouse and God. And if you're not careful, if you don't have those boundaries secure there, uh, you can actually be living and making, living forward, making decisions for someone who's not even in your household. That's what can happen with your relationship with Jesus Christ. You know, I believe some of the happiest times of my salvation was when I was so young in the Lord and so dumb that all I knew was me and Jesus. And if you're not careful, this you know red tape of unnecessary religion and the traditions of men and all these things can creep in and it can really get things complicated and all of a sudden you wake up and realize that you don't have the same joy you used to. We're going to get into that a lot in the coming weeks. But uh, just be cautious about that. These Judaizers had poisoned the minds of these Galatians against Paul. What a a horrible thing. Um, Here in the text today, as we're going to see, Paul gives an allegory to explain the difference between those who are saved by grace and those who are attempting to save themselves through their own works. And let me say this real quick allegorical preaching can be dangerous uh, because it gives the preacher artistic license that he probably shouldn't have. And I'll be honest, some of the craziest messages I ever heard come from a Baptist pulpit was when a preacher took a story in the Bible, usually from the Old Testament, but not always, and they just said, well, I think this represents this, and I think this represents this, and it has nothing to do with anything said in the text or the context. They just made it up. And if you... Give license to do that. You can make the Bible say whatever you want to. But in this case, Paul is writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. So we know that it's right and that it can be trusted. I, I don't have the right to, to do that loosely. But uh, God gave him this allegory, and it's very clear the point that he's conveying here. Paul compares a slave under the law to the son of a slave, which is Ishmael. And those saved by grace, as the son of a free woman in Isaac, and as we're gonna see, he's talking about the difference between Ishmael and Isaac, but really the comparison is more between the mothers, Hagar and Sarah. So we're gonna we're gonna see this. So with that in mind, let's read our text. We'll begin in Galatians chapter four and verse twenty-one. <clears throat> Paul says, Tell me, you that desire to be under the law, do you not hear the law? For it is written that Abraham had two sons. The one by a bondmaid, or a slave is what that is, the other by a free woman. But he was, who was of the bondwoman was born after the flesh, but he of the free woman by promise. Which things are an allegory? For these are the two covenants, the one from Mount Sinai, which gendereth to bondage, which is Agar, or Hagar is who that is. For this Hagar is Mount Sinai in Arabia. And answereth to Jerusalem, which now is and is in bondage with her children. But Jerusalem, which is above, uh, which above is free, which is the mother of us all. For it is written, Rejoice, thou barren that bearest not. Break forth and cry, thou that travailest not, for the desolate hath many more children than she which hath an husband. Now we, brethren, as Isaac was, are the children of promise. But as then, he that was born after the flesh, persecuted him that was born after the Spirit, even so it is now. Nevertheless, what saith the Scripture? Cast out the bondwoman and her son, for the son of the bondwoman should not be heir with the son of the free woman. So then, brethren, we are not the children of the bondwoman, but of the free. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we love you, Lord. And uh, Lord, I just ask forgiveness for I failed you. God, I'm, I'm not worthy to be a son. I'm certainly not worthy to preach your word. And I just pray that you would empty me of sin and self, that Christ would be magnified, that every distraction would be removed. I pray that you would just speak to us here, uh, Lord, in the church and those watching online, God, that, Lord, if there's somebody lost, they would be saved. If there's somebody who thinks they're saved, but they've been deceived. God, that you would show that to them, that you would bring uh, conviction and light into into that heart, Lord. And I just uh, pray that we would leave here with the grace and the peace that comes only in Jesus Christ. And it's in His name I pray these things. Amen. I want to preach this morning on law and grace. The contrast between law and grace. And just like last week, I only have two points. But I went back and looked at it, and I, I think I preached about 55 minutes last week, so... As we know, we we can't get too overly excited about these things. But the thing that I really want to wrestle with today is what can this allegory between Ishmael and Isaac, or more specifically Hagar and Sarah, what can this teach us about those under law versus those under grace? Well, the first thing I want to talk about this morning are the plans of men and women the plans of men and women. Look at verse 21 again. Tell me, you that desire to be under the law, do you not hear the law? And the point that he's making specifically is in the Old Testament, there's 613 laws. Ceremonial laws, moral laws, civil laws, laws of do, laws of don't. I mean, I find it very hard that Many people could even memorize 613 laws, much less live all of them out perfectly. Of course, nobody's ever done that. As I often say, I mean, even if you think about the Ten Commandments, that is God's minimum standard of human behavior, and we've all broken those. We've blasphemed God. We've used His name in vain in some way. We've lied. We've, we've stolen. We've... Uh, committed adultery in our heart through lust. I mean, we could go down the list and we're all guilty before God. And he's saying, you that want to be justified by the law, have you actually read it? Because if you did, you would understand that it only condemns you. Because if you're, as the book of James chapter 2 says, if you offend in one point, you're guilty of all. He goes on to say, for it is written that Abraham had two sons, the one by a bondmaid, which is Hagar, The other by a free woman, which is Sarah. But he who was of the bond woman was born after the flesh. That's Ishmael. But he of the free woman by promise. That's Isaac. Which things are an allegory. For these are the two covenants. The one from Mount Sinai, which is the law. That's the law of Moses. Which gendereth to bondage, which is Hagar. For this Hagar is Mount Sinai in Arabia. And answereth to Jerusalem, which now is and is in bondage with her children. Now, it's important to remember that God has made a covenant with Abraham in which he had promised him an heir that would come from his own flesh and blood. Now, this you really have to get this or you're going to miss the point that Paul is making by even sharing this story that actually happened there in the book of Genesis. God promises Abraham an heir, a son that will come through him, his own lineage, his own flesh and blood, and through this heir, God would make Abraham the father of a great nation. And even more important than that, the Messiah would come through the seed of Abraham. The Savior would come through the seed of Abraham. So remember this, if there is no seed of Abraham, there is no Savior. No seed, no Savior. So in a very real way, this promise of a son was a promise of a Savior. And so there's a lot riding on God coming through on his promise that that Abraham would have a son. But the problem was that 10 years came and went after God made this promise and there was still no son. God makes a promise and said, I'm going to give you a son. And 10 years later, there's no son. Now, just from a practical standpoint, that's problematic. Because Abraham and Sarah, they're getting on up in years. In fact, they're well past childbearing age at this time. And, you know, just like good Baptists, they're looking up at the sky and wondering where God is and looking at their watch and getting impatient. I mean, I know y'all have never done that. But I do that on a fairly regular basis. And what happens is, if we're not careful, we begin to doubt the promises of God. You know, when God makes a promise, He doesn't often put a timetable with it. And what I found is that God's time is not on Brandon's time would be nice if it worked that way, but it doesn't usually work that way. And so they're beginning to think that God is going to fail to keep His promise, and so God needs their help to do His job. And I know y'all have never felt that way. So God needs their help to do His job, at least they think so. So after ten years of waiting, Sarah, in her impatience and unbelief, comes up with the great idea... That Abraham should marry their Egyptian slave girl, Hagar, and have a son by her. That sounds like a great idea, you know, inviting another wife into the family. I'm sure that family dynamic was just wonderful. And so he did, and he hearkened unto the voice of your wife, and men usually get in trouble when they do that, amen? But uh, he did, and he married her, had a son by her. They named him Ishmael. And in, in their minds, this would fix the whole problem. I mean, they're having a son, right? The seed is coming through Abraham, right? Problem solved, right? Wrong. <laughs> he was not the son that God promised, he was the son of a slave. And this is the allegory that Paul uses to paint the picture of someone who tries to save themselves by their own works. The key phrase here that you cannot miss is what it says in the first part of verse 23. It says, but he who was of the bondwoman, Ishmael, was born after the flesh. That's not just talking about the physical act. It's talking about the scheme, the carnal reasoning. They're, they're coming up with a plan to make this whole thing work. And, and there were certain aspects of this that looked like God's plan, but it wasn't God's plan. Well, we get in a mess when we do that. Um, I, I like what um, Warren Wearsby said. He said that faith is living without scheming. Faith is living without scheming. Abraham and Sarah attempted to accomplish the work of God without the power of God and outside of the promise of God. And this is exactly what salvation by works is. There may be some aspects about salvation by works, especially on the outside, that may look spiritual, they may look Christian-like, but on the inside they're dead. They're not alive because the law cannot give life. Good works can never erase broken laws. Abraham and Sarah were scheming in an attempt to raise up a Savior through the works of their own hands. This has been one of man's problems, his greatest problems, ever since Cain, trying to appease God with the works of their own hands. And in this specific case that Paul was dealing with, the Judaizers and their followers were trying to appease God by keeping the Old Testament law. We've seen this is an impossibility. But I always like to take the specific biblical context. I mean, I'm supposed to teach you the interpretation, what the Bible is saying, but I'm also supposed to give you application and how that applies to us today. Now, I don't know many people I do know some, but I don't know many people that would say that I am actively being saved by my obedience to the Old Testament. Well, I talked to an ex-Mormon bishop a few weeks ago that told me that very thing, that he was being saved by, he was keeping the Old Testament commandments and all that. Uh, but most of the time, that's not the case, especially in the Christian church. And so, we, we, you know, this almost seems like a foreign concept to us. So I want to try to put it in situations and terms that maybe we would recognize And understand, because it's important to remember that everyone has a God or an idol that they have raised up in their life. Every single person, without fail, has raised up some type of God, little g God, or an idol or a code that they have raised up in their life uh, and standards to go with that belief concerning that God or idol that makes them feel like a good person. Uh, But before we really get into the meat of this point, and this is, this is so important. And, and if you don't hear anything else, you need to hear this because this is really going to be a springboard to everything that's said from this point on. But I want to ask you a question. Do you think it's possible for a person to be sincerely wrong? Do you think it's possible for somebody, I'm talking about just be sold out and willing to die and suffer for what they believe and to be absolutely wrong? Absolutely. And so we ought to ask ourselves the question, Could we be sincerely wrong about some things that we believe, about everything we believe? And the reason I say that is because a lot of people want to gauge their goodness or their level of spirituality or even their Christianity. They like to base that off their sincerity. They judge themselves by their motives or maybe their dedication or their intentions. And it could be totally wrong. Our motivation and our dedication is no indicator of whether or not what we believe is true. The only thing that makes what we believe true is if what we believe is true. And so we need to really check ourselves and ask ourselves the question, could we be sincerely wrong? These Judaizers, they were zealous about what they believed, and they were wrong in what they believed. And so it it happens every day. You know, you really don't even have to rack your brain to think about examples of this. I, I jotted down just a few off the top of my head. Anybody remember Jim Jones? Jim Jones' cult, he, he convinced, uh, I think it was over 900 people, to uh, go to Guyana, to leave the U.S. and go to Guyana. You know, it was the will of God, but looking back, it was because he was in trouble with the feds. But they did. They, they built their life out of nothing out there in the jungle. And then... When he lost his mind, he convinced over 900 people to drink poison Kool Aid, a mass suicide, all because they were wrong. I mean, you can't get any more dedicated than that, can you? But they were sincerely wrong. What about the Heaven's Gate cult? Remember that? That's been quite a, a few years ago where they, you know, the Hellbot Comet was coming overhead and. Uh, they all dressed in black and wore Nike sneakers and lay down and put a bag over their head. I think it was 39 of them that died because their leader taught them that behind the comet was an alien spacecraft, and if they killed themselves at the exact right time, they could catch the alien spacecraft. They believed it. They believe what they believe more than most Baptists believe what they believe, but they were wrong. They were sincerely wrong, and they paid the, a great price for that. How, what a shame. What about 9-11? For over two years, they planned that. And they always knew it was going to be a one-way trip. They, they, those hijackers flew planes into buildings and killed themselves. I mean, that's how terrible. You can't be more dedicated than that, but they were sincerely wrong. I mean, even unto the point of death. And uh, But I, w- I want to say this about those acts, all those acts I just mentioned. I know, listen, I know these are extreme cases. But I'm going to use these extreme cases to get to some general points I think that you'll understand. But the important thing to remember about all these examples that I just listed, you know, some people look at that and, and they say that was, that was dedication. That was an act of dedication, but I want to disagree with that. That's not dedication, that's desperation. They want so badly to be approved by God or they want so badly to make the alien spacecraft or they want so bad uh, to be in line with their leaders or whatever the goal may be, but they're so worried that they're not going to make it that they are willing to even sacrifice their lives in just the hope that God would accept them. That's not dedication, that's desperation. There's a big difference between those two. They were so desperate to appease their God or their idol that they were willing to die on the off chance that their sacrifice would be sufficient and pleasing. Uh, They were controlled by the implications of these false beliefs. Let me say this. Even atheists are slaves to their own worldview. Now, they'll have you say that they're not religious, but they're religious. It takes a lot of faith to believe that all this stuff just got here by chance. They have faith that when they die, they're going to take an eternal dirt nap, and there's not going to be a, a God on the other end of death there to judge them. Their greatest hope is, at, that, at their point of death, their greatest hope is there's no God. What a sad existence. They, they, they're a slave <clears throat> to their own worldview. I mean, for example, can you imagine an atheist, famous, I believe is an astrophysicist, famous atheist, Richard Dawkins, written many books. Can you imagine... If Richard Dawkins even casually admitted the slight possibility that there just might be a God out there somewhere in the universe, they would hang him for that. His community would absolutely turn their back on him. They would turn on him so quick it would make his head spin. Why? Because he's a slave to his own system. Uh, I thought about Christopher Hitchens. Um, He's dead now. But Christopher Hitchens was one of the most famous, outspoken atheists of our generation. And I've actually sent a video of him speaking for the last time. You know, he got cancer, and it really, I mean, it took him down fast. He, it just really took his health. That's what he died from. But the last time he ever gave a public speech was at the Free Thought Convention um, several years ago. But... Um, You know, he has no hair. He's all shriveled up. He's very weak. He's coughing every few words. And at that moment, now, if you want to really see something interesting, I would highly encourage you to see the debates that Hitchens had uh, with Doug Wilson, who was a pastor out of Moscow, very informative. They actually went on a debate tour. They made a video, a documentary called, I believe it's called Collision, and they they traveled together, Hitchens and Wilson. They had a lot of private conversations and um, he got to share the gospel with him and, and Hitchens admitted that he learned some things he didn't know and quite honestly, Wilson made him look silly quite a few times because it's a, it's a silly worldview. It really is. And Wilson has stated uh, that he felt like mentally, from just a, a human, mental, uh, logical standpoint, Hitchens had come to a place where he knew he was wrong. He knew he was wrong. And in those last days when he was suffering with chemotherapy and, and he knew he didn't have much hope and he knew he was going to die, Doug Wilson said, I believe that man was tormented. Because if, he had ever, if he'd ever retracted his position, if he'd ever taken back the things that he said, he would, it looked like he would have died a coward to all those that he uh, had been a part of for so many years. In fact... In his last speech at the Free Thought Convention, just about a three-minute speech, he couldn't handle any more than that, Um, he he made the statement that he was comforted and excited because of the recent discovering of of humanoids dated to be about 75,000 years old. Boy, I'm comforted by that, aren't you? Uh, He told the audience that they should be equally ambitious and carry on the fight of proving That there are no absolute solutions. There is no absolute truth. There is no supreme leader. We must repudiate those claims for the peddlers of all such things are the real impostors. That was his pretty much his dying words to his people. What a a hope. What a hope. Right there on your deathbed. But he couldn't. There's no way he could have retracted it. And think about this. Whenever... A person buys into a false belief system. And I mean the deeper they get in, the the stronger the teeth get in them. But I mean, really, you would have to admit you're wrong, right? Pride is a very heavy, heavy thing. It's really hard to get out of the grips of your own pride. And he would have had to admit, I'm wrong. I'm wrong and God is right. I'm wrong and Jesus Christ really did die on the cross as the God-man. He really did rise from the dead. I really am a sinner in need of His salvation. That's hard words to utter for a man like Hitchens. But we were all there one day at some point, weren't we? God had to break us of our pride, draw us unto Himself and show us our need for His Savior. And, you know, sometimes, I mean, I think about the Mormons here. In order to be saved, they're not only going to have to admit that they were wrong... They're going to have to admit that their daddy was wrong and their mama was wrong and their grandparents were wrong and their great-grandparents. That's a hard thing to do. All my friends are wrong. All my family's wrong. My bishop's wrong. The ward is wrong. That's a hard, hard thing to do. Think about the rich young ruler who wasn't willing to give up his riches. Some people aren't willing to give up their pride, their family. And uh, you say, well, what does that have to do with me? I know I've given some extreme examples. I've got another one, but I'm coming in for a general point here. And I want to say there are false Christians. And they may have the Christian label, but it's the Christian label only because they put their faith and trust in the wrong things. And um, even this week, even this week I came across a documentary uh, called Snake Salvation. It's on National Geographic. But it's a reality show that uh, followed a church in Kentucky. Uh, The church was called the Full Gospel Tabernacle in Jesus' Name. That's the whole name of the church. The Full Gospel Tabernacle in Jesus' Name. Now the reason they went to this church is because it's a snake handling church. It's famous for handling poisonous snakes. And what's amazing is this show followed the pastor. His name is Jamie Coots. And this man had been bitten by rattlesnakes, I think, five or six times. He managed to survive and actually lost a finger. His finger completely died because he shriveled up because he got bit by a rattlesnake. And in 2014, he died from a rattlesnake bite. Right there in the middle of the pulpit, it was handling bit him on the hand, and in seven minutes, he was dead. Well, you would have thought (laughs) that people looking at that would have said, you know, this probably isn't a good idea. But believe it or not, his twenty three year old son Cody took over his pasture right after he died. And guess what he continued to do? Handle snakes. Well, the video that got my attention that I happened to come across is Cody is preaching in the pulpit. He's got this about five foot long timber rattlesnake, and it bit him right in the face. And he told the band to keep playing, and you know, he believed God was a healer and all of a sudden, he began to get really weak, and he was just bleeding everywhere. And you knew, this man is about to die. He is about to die just like his daddy. And you know what's so sad about that is, they took one verse out of context in Mark chapter 16. And, and people died for that. His dad was 42 when he died. But this is something I found out that I did not know about the snake handlers. Is they believe that when somebody gets bitten by a snake, that if they live it's because they were worthy. That God spared them because they were worthy. And if they died, it's because they were unworthy. And I thought, what a horrible existence. You know, they're sincere, but they're sincerely wrong. And how horrible, not only did he have to bury his dad, but now he has to battle with the stigma that he died unworthily. He don't even know if that man's in heaven or not. You say, well, that's extreme. It is. But what's not so extreme are that people in Baptist churches all over this world will come to church, they'll sit in a pew, they'll sing the songs, they'll open their Bible, they'll talk the talk, and all the churchy type things that we do, and yet they have trusted in other things to make them right with God. You would be amazed at some of the stuff I've heard over the years about what makes a person right. Um... Just just a few that I had jotted down. Um, you know, I, obviously, I've taught several people that will quote their works. Oh, I, I'm right with God because I'm a faithful friend. I'm a hard worker. I'm a good husband or a good wife. I've heard that a lot. Uh, I, I've heard uh, people put faith in their baptism. Oh, I was baptized, you know, or, or ties. I give money to the church, or I, I go to church. Or, you know, years ago at vacation Bible school, I might have repeated a prayer Or, listen, I've known some people that thought that God was going to let them into heaven based on who their parents were. I'm not making this up. I knew a guy that thought he was all right with God because his parents paved the parking lot in the church. True story. People really believe this. I met a man one time that thought he was right with God because he gave money to local hospitals. He was a wealthy man. He had donated some money to the local hospitals. He thought that God would have to honor that. (laughs) What a small view of God. Uh, I mean, I've heard people list their personal standards of holiness for why they're right with God. Or, you know, who knows? But, I mean, there might be some people here this morning that you may have been in church your whole life, but all you've had is religious training. You've never been born again. You've never been saved. Christ is not the Lord of your life. There's no real fruit of your salvation. You know how to talk in front of certain people. You know how to act in front of certain people. You know how to dress in front of certain people. But there's been no heart change. There's no peace in your heart with God. There's no joy of salvation. There's no fruit there. 2 Corinthians 5.17 said, If any man be in Christ, if any woman be in Christ, they're a new creature. Old things are passed away, and behold, all things are become new. And so the question is, Do you have an active relationship with God through Jesus Christ? Have you been born again by the Spirit of God? Are you at peace with God and have you been forgiven by God? Or are you sincerely wrong? Ishmael, the son of a slave, represents those who are a slave of their own works and their own self-effort. Have you trusted in the cleverly crafted schemes of men? And are you trusting the efforts of the flesh to save you? I've got one more point and I'm done. And it's not going to be this long. We've talked about the plans of men and women. The scheming to try to earn God's favor. But the last thing I want to talk about is the promise of God. Look at verse 26. But, so we know there's a contrast coming to what we just read. But Jerusalem, which is above free, which is the mother of us all, For it is written, Rejoice, thou barren that bearest not. Break forth and cry, thou that travailest not. For the desolate hath many more children than she which hath an husband. Now we brethren, as Isaac was, are the children of promise. But as then he that was born after the flesh persecuted him that was born after the Spirit, even so it is now. Nevertheless, what saith the Scripture? Cast out the bondwoman and her son. For the son of the bondwoman shall not be heir with the son of the free woman. So then, brethren, we are not children of the bondwoman, but of the free. So 10 years after God promised them a son, they took Abraham and Sarah took matters in their own hands and had Ishmael by Hagar. But 25 years after the promise, uh, the son finally came. It finally happened, 25 years. And when Isaac was born, listen to this. Abraham was 100 years old, and Sarah was 90 years old. I can't even think about that how that works. I just, it's, wow. God did the absolute impossible. He brought life from death. Sarah's womb was barren and dead. No wonder, verse 27 says, Rejoice, thou barren that bearest not. Break forth and cry, thou that travailest not. He brought life from death. Whereas the birth of Ishmael was the work of the flesh and the scheme of men, the birth of Isaac was a supernatural birth. Now, we cannot be saved from the penalty and power of our sin through our own fleshly effort. It must come through a supernatural birth, a spiritual birth. We find a great illustration of this In John chapter 3, when Jesus is talking to Nicodemus, Nicodemus was the most religious person you can imagine. A Pharisee of the Pharisees. He was a wealthy man. He was a a man of great influence. And he came to Jesus by night. And Jesus told him, you must be born again. And that's talking about a spiritual birth or to be born from above. Listen, salvation is the work of God, folks. Don't ever forget that. You you have to have the Lord, or you cannot be saved. You cannot do it through your own efforts. Jesus Christ, God, the Son of God, came to this earth through the womb of a virgin. He lived a sinless life as the God-man. He lived that perfect life that we pretend that we can live. He actually did live it. He he satisfied the just demands of God's law, and He died on our place. And when He was on the cross... God the Father placed our sin upon Him. He placed our iniquity on Him and then He poured His wrath upon His own Son for that sin, paying our sin debt and three days later Christ rose from the dead to prove that God the Father was satisfied with that. And the only way that somebody can be saved is to repent of their own dead works and their own self-effort and say, Lord, I can't, but You can. In fact, repentance... I've heard said, and I like this, that repentance is when we take sides with God against ourselves. God, you're right, and I'm wrong. I can't save myself. That's a problem because this flies solely in the face of human pride. There, listen, there's just something ingrained within us that wants to feel like we had a part in our salvation. I did something. And if, if I hadn't have done that something, God couldn't have saved me. There's just something that that wants to have a a part of it. That that pride, as we said, is a weighty thing. I mean, think about some of the groups that we've talked about already. The Muslims and the Mormons and the cults and the snake handlers and fill in the blank. How much better off would they have been if they had just repented of their own self-effort, their own false religion, their own idols, and surrendered to the lordship of Christ? Listen, I know that people tend to count the cost of losing family or maybe losing a job or Or maybe having somebody curse you or talk bad about you. Or in some situations, you know, even being killed. You know, Islam sometimes does honor killings if somebody leaves the faith. But when you begin to calculate that against eternity, there's just no comparison. There's no comparison. What shall a man profit if he gain the whole world and lose his own soul? They'd have been a lot better off if they just repented and submitted to Jesus Christ. And you can be saved, forgiven, clean, made right with God and on your way to heaven. But you must repent of your idols and self-effort and trust in Christ. The promise is salvation to all those who call upon Him in humble faith. Whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. But you must cast out the bondwoman. Look at verse 29. But as then he that was born after the flesh persecuted him that was born after the Spirit, even so it is now. Nevertheless, what saith the Scripture, cast out the bondwoman and her son. For the son of the bondwoman shall not be heir with the son of the free woman. So then, brethren, we are not children of the bondwoman, but of the free. And so what he's saying here, and this is really one of the main gist of this text, That law and grace cannot coexist as it pertains to salvation. They're two different things. You're either saved by the grace of God or you're saved by your own self-effort. There is no in-between. There is no combination. You can't marry those things. It's impossible. You cannot do it. And so he's telling these Galatians, listen, you're a son of the free woman. You're the seed of Abraham. You're a child of God, and now you're wanting to put yourself back up under Hagar? You want to put yourself back up under the law? Have you not even read the law? I, I think about uh, that self-effort and just wanting to to feel like you played a part in your salvation or your sanctification. I mean, even yesterday we took the the youth skating yesterday, and it was I'm sure it's a pretty hilarious thing to see me and Sean and Andy walking behind our youngest kids like this, you know, and and Laura, I mean, she's too self-sufficient for her own good. I usually tell people that she's four going on 16. But, I mean, she just I'm just a nervous wreck. Every time she leans back, I'm just, you know, I'm ready to catch her. And, I mean, it's just scaring me to death. And, and then after, like, one lap around, she's like, I got it, Dad. I'm like, I'm sure you do until you don't. It's just something about the human heart. We want to, look, we want to be self-sufficient, don't we? Isn't that the problem going all the way back to the Garden of Eden? Satan said, if you eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, to Eve, he said, you'll be as gods, knowing good and evil. That was an act of independence. When they took of that forbidden fruit, they were waving a battle flag against God and said, we don't need you. We can be our own God. And that has been the problem ever since, that people think they don't need God. But friend, we're all sinners under the wrath of God. And the only way to escape that, the only way to be made right with God is through the promise And the promise is that he'll save all those that call upon him in faith. Isaac represents those who are free in Christ, who have trusted the promise of the gospel for salvation. So I just ask you, are you under the law? Are you trying to win your own salvation? Are you truly under grace? Have you been saved by grace today? If you've not, trust the Lord today. Trust Him in His finished work.